In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Mark's account of the resurrection sometimes seems like an odd choice for the gospel reading for Easter morning because it doesn't actually recount the resurrection itself. Instead, it tells us of what some of Jesus' followers, namely three women, were up to on that morning. If you've lived through a tragic or historic event, you can probably remember exactly what you were doing when it happened. If you're over 55, I bet you remember exactly where you were when you heard the news of JFK's assassination. And if you're over 30, no doubt you remember exactly what you were doing on the day the Twin Towers fell. So what about the followers of Christ who lived through the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday? Where were they, and what were they doing at the moment Jesus was raised? Nothing worth writing about, apparently. Notably absent from the narrative is anything about Peter, James, and John, or any of the other apostles. The only people who are even mentioned at all are three women, two of whom are named Mary, and they aren't acting in a particularly brave or logical manner. Their behavior is hardly something you would want to remember years later, and yet it is recorded for us in the gospel this morning. The women are not prepared. They've stumbled out there with spices and a vague idea of anointing Jesus' body, something that doesn't actually need doing. Remember, Jesus was already anointed by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And he was anointed for his burial by Mary of Bethany, who washed his feet and dried them with her tears. And in case that wasn't enough, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea anointed Jesus with a hundred pounds of spices when they laid him in the tomb. But the women feel like they ought to be doing something And so they are headed to the tomb, even though they know they won't be able to roll the stone away. They're trying to be busy, but they don't actually have a plan, and they think Jesus is dead. They're like confused children or lost sheep. First, they are alarmed. Later, they are trembling and astonished. And finally, they flee from the tomb and don't say anything to anyone. And the apostles, as I've already said, they weren't even as brave as the frightened women. At least the women came out of hiding to try to anoint Jesus. But the apostles, all of whom had promised only a couple days before that they would die for Jesus, had all forsaken him and were at that moment cowering behind locked doors. You see why Mark's account is an odd choice for Easter Sunday. Every last one of Jesus' followers is either doing dumb stuff, running, hiding, or doing nothing at all. And yet, the church fathers, in their wisdom, chose this passage from Mark, rather than one of the other Gospels, to be read on Easter morning 
the greatest and most triumphant day of the church year. Why? Perhaps because the fact that the apostles are absent and the women are terrified is part of what makes the resurrection such wonderful news. Jesus was raised without the help of his followers. He accomplished the salvation of the world without human contribution of any kind. Easter is not even one tiny bit about what we must do or how we must behave. It is only about Christ and what he has done. This is the heart of the gospel message. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were forsaking and abandoning and denying and betraying and hiding, he bore the sins of the world alone. And without any help at all from his closest followers, Jesus rose on Easter morning. There were no eyewitnesses of that actual moment, no cheering fans, no loyal supporters. Jesus accomplished everything himself alone. By the time the women got to the tomb with their ill-conceived plan, as St. Mark tells us, the Sabbath was already passed and fulfilled. The sun had risen. The stone had been rolled away. Satan had been conquered. The grave had been robbed of its prey. And the tomb was empty. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. It's no trivial detail that the women went to the tomb early in the morning after the sun had risen. The church has always regarded the rising sun as an important reminder that God is in control. Jesus rose from the dead and creation goes on because of God's grace and mercy. If God would have held Adam and Eve accountable for breaking his law and not provided them a means by which they could be restored to him, they would simply have been destroyed and we along with them. There's no reason for God to come walking in the garden and look for them. There's no reason to talk with them. There's no reason to promise them a savior. The earth would have just been snuffed out. No oxygen, no light, no morning. The rising sun is in reality a gift from God, evidence of his mercy that creation is continuing, that God is with us and for us. Every sunrise should impress upon us the fact that Christ rose from the grave. The women were shocked to hear that Jesus was risen. The disciples didn't believe it when they first heard the news. And yet the resurrection of Christ is inevitable. Without it, his death means nothing. But there never was any doubt, except in the minds of Jesus' followers. When Jesus dies, he dies as a Christian. That is, knowing that he would be raised. In this regard, your death will be no different than his. According to the promise of Christ, your resurrection 
is just as certain as Jesus is. To be a Christian is to go to your death with absolute certainty that you will be raised. Because the grave could not hold Jesus, it will not hold you. Jesus is the first fruits of the grave, the first believer in the resurrection to be raised, though he is not the first to die in the hope of that resurrection. Today, the prophecy we heard read was from the oldest book of the Bible. That is the first book to be written. The prophet Job, who lived long before Moses, long before the Levitical law that spoke of a kinsman redeemer, expects to have a kinsman, a relative who will redeem him after he's died. He expects to be raised up and redeemed, that is, to be bought back out of slavery to sin, death, and the devil. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job means he is confessing that God himself will become his kinsman. And remember, Job doesn't have any kinsmen, not anymore. Everyone's dead. Job's at the end, mourning the loss of all ten of his children. But Job believes that God will make himself Job's kinsman precisely in order to redeem him. And he will do that long after Job has died and worms have destroyed his body. Yet with that same body, Job says, I will see God. Job, a Christian, goes to his grave believing in the promised hope of the resurrection. And his hope was not in vain. Just as surely as Christ was raised, Job too will be raised. We celebrate the day of our Lord's resurrection as a literal historical event that actually happened, just as it was recorded. But Easter is not only a past event. It is your future, and it's the future of every believer. Your resurrection is inevitable. Why? Well, not because of you. Thank God for that. It's not in your hands. To Christ and him alone belongs the glory. For our sakes, he did battle with our ancient enemy and emerged from the fray triumphant. Without any contribution from us, he swallowed up death forever, motivated solely by his great mercy which we could never earn or deserve, Jesus redeemed us from sin and stepped out of his tomb with the rising sun on Easter morning. And now that he has been raised, he lives forevermore, and we too shall live. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.